Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Claire McKeever Burgett, and I work with the Academy for Spiritual Formation, an international ministry of the Upper Room. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. Today, I'm joined by Jenny Booth Potter, who is the co-host and producer of The Next Question, a video-based web series devoted to expanding the imagination for racial justice. In the first season, the show hosted conversations with Nicole Hannah-Jones, Rachel Cargill, Andre Henry, and Brene Brown, and it includes co-hosts Austin Channing Brown and Chi-Chi Okwu. Jenny and I talk about the next question quite a bit in our conversation, so I'm excited for you to learn more about it. You can also visit the next question online at www.tnqshow.com. In addition to co-hosting the next question, Jenny has led anti-racism trainings for churches and spoken at conferences such as Christian Community Development Association, First In, Last Out, and the World Vision Pastors Gathering. Working as a creative producer, Jenny's favorite thing is to create spaces for people to connect and be transformed through the power of story. Jenny lives outside of Chicago with her husband, John, and their two sons, Elliot and Milo. I talked with Jenny in September of 2020, believe it or not, which both feels like yesterday and ages ago. What even is time? Our conversation remains deeply relevant as we discuss all things anti-racism, personal and communal transformation, and so much more. As you listen today, grab a cup of tea or a mug of coffee or a glass of water, or take a walk or a drive if you need a change of scenery. However, wherever, settle in, settle down. Listen on, beloveds, and as you listen, breathe, expand, grow, learn, enjoy, and transform. I was reading the, um, the through the questions again that I had jotted down. I was like, yeah, this is a lot more than we can cover an hour, okay, but. No, I really appreciated you sending those ahead of time. I didn't look at them until this morning and I was like, Ooh, this is, these are very thought provoking. So cool. should we get started? Yeah. I have enough coffee in me that I can start rambling. Perfect. Lovely. Um, or, you know, saying nice things that your listeners will appreciate. They will. It'll be great. Great. <laughs> well, welcome Jenny to the Academy podcast. It's so good to see you and get to spend some time together today. And I love that I get to kind of dig into the past as I introduce you to the folks who listen to this, but you and I go kind of back to connection through sojourners and um, time in Washington, DC and different, just those social justice uh, networks. So glad that, that all these years later, we're getting to, to reconnect. But I would love to hear just as we begin, and I kind of always ask this, but uh, who do you come from? Uh, where do you come from? What do you come from? Um, start there. Wow. Well, Claire, it's so fun to see your face again. And yeah, it's been a really long time. I think we met in 2005, I mm -hmm. think was when um, I moved out to DC and kind of started hanging out being like the third wheel of the Sojo, like the cool Sojo kids. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I am, uh, I'll go region. I am a born and bred Midwest girl. So my parents met on a blind date in, at Iowa State. So they both are from the lovely state of Iowa. Um, and then they moved to the Chicagoland area and had me and I have yeah, I've lived in the Chicago suburbs my whole life. Um, went to college in the city, um, which felt like a big departure for my Iowa parents who were like, what are you, <laughs> who raised you? Um, they were, yeah, we, they, they liked being like near the train station and that was like the most excitement they could handle. And then we would yeah. And then we just like come back home. They didn't even want to like go into the city. It was like, let's just like take a train ride. Um, but yeah, so I, I 
lived in uh, DC for a couple of years. And then my husband and I moved back to Chicago and we've been here ever since. So um, yeah, I feel very, I feel like I have a lot of roots where I am right now. And I think I'm in the process right now of examining all those roots and deciding what stays and what goes. Um, I think in some ways I was like a really early bloomer and also a late bloomer. So I feel like I'm doing some of these <laughs> like leave and cleave things as like a late 30 something um, where a lot of my peers, I think did, did that kind of earlier in their 20s. So I'm going to say it's leave and cleave and not codependent. <laughs> we'll yeah. call it like a nicer. Um, but yeah, I think I've been on a journey of, um, yeah, really getting to the core of who I am. God has been continuing to kind of strip things that are in the way of that. And so I just, I feel like currently I'm in a season where I'm really just trying to listen and um, not fear loss, not fear cutting off the roots, um, but trusting that, yeah, that there's, a, that there's like a plan as cheesy as that sounds. So um, I come from a pre predominantly like evangelical background um, as far as faith goes and I've really kind of stayed in that tradition um, and in the last few years have really been poking at that and and punching it and <laughs> breaking it apart. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with uh, I have two sons and my oldest is six. And so he's starting to ask these questions about faith and it's the, how do I, how does this look like what I learned as a child and how is it different? And um, so, yeah, lots of, lots of like gardening metaphors in my <laughs> mm -hmm. root and uh, weeding out things and, and just wanting to be, yeah, wanting to be rooted in the right things that are continued to, going to continue to anchor me um, to who, how I believe God has designed me. So in a few words, what would you say you're, you feel like you're leaving? And then what, what do you feel like you're, you're longing to cleave to? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think I'm, I am leaving places where I felt like I've belonged my whole life. So I've been part of one faith tradition um, and one church primarily and just really, yeah, uh, saying, do I still belong here and not forcing it? Um, and I think what I'm going towards, I hope is, you know, I love the Rachel Held Evans quote that the future of the church is in the margins. And so I just want to go to the margins, like where, where's that? Who are those people? And I mean, I know who that is and where those people are. And so I just, um, a lot of my work um, with like racial justice has been really about the decentering of myself. And I think on a larger, more macro scale, that's kind of the the denomination that I've been a part of, or it's non-denominational. So the non-denominational denomination that I've been a mm -hmm. part of has, I think, kind of struggled with the same thing of always being at the center. Um, and we miss out when we're always at the center. And that's probably not healthy. And that's, um, so in a weird way, I feel like, yeah, I'm on the same path as what I'm projecting <laughs> yeah. on my, my faith as well. Yeah. So maybe give us an example of what it looks like uh, to take yourself out of the center. How, how's that playing out for you? Mm -hmm. um, real practically, I'm, I really am trying to, at first it was more difficult and now it's kind of coming second nature, but really practically, like I try not to be the first one to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, when I'm in 
a circle, especially with women of color, especially black women, I'm like, I am not going to like, it doesn't even matter the topic. Like it doesn't like we could be talking about the weather. I don't know, but just, but just constantly, Mm. why do I, and it is this interesting thing being a white woman, because I think we have these, um, not woe is the white woman, but it's not what I'm about to say, but it is a weird, um, I have found it to be kind of like these confusing messages of, okay, in a lot of the environments I'm in, it's all white people, but I'm usually one of the few women. So the message I get there is speak up, speak first, go first, be bold, take up your space. Don't be small. Don't diminish yourself. Don't shrink. Um, you know, you just, you deserve that seat at the table Right, (laughs) is a lot of the message that as a white woman, I'm, I'm having, I've absorbed to, um, not just totally be like a doormat in these white male spaces, but I'm consistently and predominantly in, and then you switch over to other tables and it's like, well, well now I'm definitely not going to be like taking up my space and, um, going first and interrupting and not apologizing for that. Like, so it's these, um, it's just, it's just an interesting, it's just something that I'm like constantly aware of, of in a weird way. I've just now kind of embraced that there is almost some code switching. Like, I don't know if I'm allowed to use that term, but I do feel like I am very aware of where it is, not a problem to be forcing myself to the center and where it is and just to be kind of constantly on the lookout. So it's not like a solid, I'm never in the center or I'm never trying to put myself forward. Um, But it's really what I'm around. Yeah. Like I said, what I'm around predominantly like circles where I'm one of the few white people, one of the few white women, I am constantly, um, wanting to elevate and magnify the voices that are around those spaces. Um, And not in a way that I feel like, oh, I can't even see anything in the, like, I'm so afraid, like, it's not out of fear. It's out of um, invitation to, I want, I'm, I'm, I'm so aware that in a lot of ways, my experience has been represented and told and heard. And so like, I'm interested in how do we, I, there's a phrase that I repeat a lot of the times, which is your story has been told. And that really helped me out, especially um, when I first kind of really saw the disparity along racial lines and just like, how do I navigate myself in this, my role in this? Um, but just that reminder that like my history has been told the way that it's, <laughs> the way that, the, you know, the, the way that they've wanted to twist it, it has been told. Um, I have been represented in like every media possible. Every type of me has been portrayed. Um, and like, so I, I what am I, like, what do, what do I need to add to that, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's logical, but I think it's also, um, it's a, yeah, it's really rooted in that belief that there's other stories to hear. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I want to make sure that I'm not getting in the way of, of that happening. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about how, for ever, for centuries, you know, white folks have benefited from the labor, particularly of black women, right? And, and the unpaid labor. And so we're looking really carefully at how, how do we end that, right? And so um, what does that look like in the things that we're assigning people to read, right? Because mm. the consumption of books or um, you know, I mean, the things that we're, that we're paying for or encouraging other people to pay for, um, listen, watch, buy, you know, so personally, um, I have been just kind of slowly going through where I spend my money 
and just trying to figure out like, um, okay, like how do, how can I shift this to buy from a black person of color owned company? Um, and anyway, those have just been some of the ways that, um, personally I've been doing that, but then also in the academy, we've been looking at how we kind of engage these practices and none of it happened. I've, I've just been really struck by the fact that like none of it happens overnight, mm. <laughs> but like as a white person, I think I'm sort of conditioned white supremacist culture has sort of taught me that like I get things really fast and all of this can just happen. And, and um, and so that kind of gets to something I wanted to talk to you about, um, this whole idea of practice. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I had, had said to you ahead of time, I mean, something that really struck me um, that you said recently that I read on your Instagram was practice makes progress. And that has been so helpful to me in some personal mm-hmm. conversations. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, I'm a yoga teacher, pastor, all of these things. And so I've always been like, practice makes practice, right? So this idea that like, Mm. we just keep showing up and we keep practicing. And I loved, I love that shift toward practice makes progress because I do believe, and I have seen it in my life and in the lives of others where when we keep at a thing, right, whether that's anti-racism, decentering myself from the narrative Mm -hmm. and from the story, um, doing stretches, I mean, right, like Mm -hmm. in a yoga practice, there, there's a progress. There's a, there's a shift um, toward maybe being a little more flexible or feeling a little different mm. or being able to spend, mm-hmm. you know, spending my money differently. So, um, so talk with us a little bit about where that practice makes progress comes from for you and, and what mm-hmm. it's looked like in your life. Um, yeah. Talk to us. About yeah. That. Oh, I'm so glad it resonated. That means a lot. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, yeah, I am guessing that a lot of, I mean, I can't believe it's been 26 minutes or whatever that we've been talking. I haven't brought up the Enneagram yet, which I think is just really a sign of my growth. Um, but I am an Enneagram one. Most of the time I feel sometimes stereotyped, like I'm not like the cleanest, like most organized Mm. love right angles type person, but I definitely have a vision of how I think the world could be. And, um, integrity and right and wrong really matter to me. And and one of the other kind of things that Enneagram ones are known for is this like obsession with perfection and this, um, this lovely little thing we like to call our, the voice of the inner critic, which is just super fun. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'd always heard, you know, the not helpful phrase practice makes perfect. And I was like, well, that's, in my, you know, trying to be a healthy person, like that feels like, especially for me, I really need to watch out for that because usually what the pursuit of perfection means for me is I procrastinate and I push off because if I can't do it perfectly, why engage with it at all? Like that's, I'm a very like all or nothing kind of person. Like we were talking before, like spurts, like I'll do fit something And I just want to, I love like before and after like shows and like makeover where it's just like, oh my gosh, like it went from this like cardboard, you know, stuff everywhere to like this beautiful, cool industrial loft. And I'm, I'm like such a sucker for that kind of stuff. And so I, um, being in this work long enough, you hear from predominantly black women have been speaking this message to me over and over again, which is like, there is no way for you to do this work perfectly. Like, mm-hmm. stop it. You're already not doing it perfectly. So just, so just let that go. Um, and once I let that go, once I let the finish line, the prize of, um, you know, trying to make equality for all humans, like you need a prize for that. But once I let that go of being kind of, um, the carrot I was dangling or even an attainable part of what I was doing, it was like, okay, well then, then what am I, how do I like measure this? How do, you know, versus it just being this like endless void or just, or or all these kind of disparate things, Mm -hmm. like what kind of anchors it? And, um, many, many years ago, like 
I was in DC actually when I did this, but um, I was training for the Chicago marathon and it was such a like mental shift for me. And there was, um, it was such a mental shift because it really became about the experience was the point. Mm -hmm. And so in a weird way, I think this pursuit of perfection kind of gets in the way of our experience of enjoying the growth that we get to be a witness to and a participant in. Um, and, and I think it's just, it's been true to what I've seen. Once I let go of like, I'm going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, or someone's going to think I'm racist, or they're going to like take it the wrong way. Or like once I let a lot of those things go and I just said, I am a work in process. I am trying to be better today than I was yesterday. And I don't even necessarily know what the finish line looks like. I don't actually think there's a finish line, but I just want to be better today than I was yesterday. I want there to be growth. And I think perfection is a growth killer. Um, And yeah, I, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh Uh-huh. Period. (laughs) That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for, for talking with us about that. I, I feel that too. And um, yay for bringing up the Enneagram. We've talked about it some on, uh, in some of my conversations, but I identify as a three. And, um, and so with that, like sort of the performer achiever, there is this cloud, um, overlay, I guess, of, mm-hmm. of perfection in sort of the image that we yeah. like to, or that I like to present. And, um, and so that's what gets me hung up a lot of times, particularly in anti-racism work, um, is that like, what's the image that I'm putting out there yep. um, as, and then as opposed to sort of, okay, what are the practices that I'm actually engaging in that, yep support this image right that I want to portray and and that requires just some deep um hard questions of myself um and thankfully um and within my marriage and in you Mm. know the the circles that I that I hang out in and that are healing for me um in my friendships and so so yeah I'm with you on that yeah and I think back to the earlier question of how do you um, what does decentering yourself look like? That's part of it because I'm toying around with whether or not I'm going to just like go public and say that I kind of hate the pursuit of allyship. <laughs> mm. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm getting close to that. I'm getting close to, you know, five ways to be a great ally and, um, I just am like this, that again, puts you at the center that again, makes it about you. And I think, um, where I've seen myself want to be perfect, it's usually around people of color and they don't have time. For, like, they don't have time for my foolishness that I'm like, did I do that the right way? Did that come off? Okay. Did that, how did that sound? Like, I'm not, mm usually I'm not that worried about it in front of white people. Mm. Like I'm not bringing that like anxiety and fear of doing it the wrong way um, in front of other white people. Usually that's, and maybe we'll talk about that later. Like that has definitely shifted. um, But, but it's such a, it's such a centering tool of saying, how do I look doing this? How is this interpreted? Whatever. And and obviously you want to be careful with that because you want to care about those. That's not inherently a bad thing to say, how do I, how am I seen? How is this interpreted? Of course, but like anything, when it becomes more important than the actual work of interrupting and disrupting and dismantling systems and structures that, you know, that keep people in certain places, that's where it becomes problematic. And I think that's where a lot of people hang out. And that's why I just want to disrupt that message as much as possible because, um, yeah, because I think it's, it is, uh, like we were saying, it's a barrier to growth, 
because yeah and and it's it's a i think it's another you know i feel like white supremacy is becoming this like buzzword and so i don't want to just like casually throw it around but i do think there's um there is a lot of truth to anything that is keeping us inactive in our pursuit of racial justice i'm gonna say maybe was a maybe the, like has been co-opted by white supremacy i don't know if white supremacy invented that but i do think um doing enough to like diffuse people's pursuit like so getting in the narrative like oh they're gonna think you're a racist and to be a racist it means you're a bad evil person versus to be racist is to live in america is like that's you know right. is to right. normalizing breathe. it yeah and um and letting that be like okay and let, let's move on let's move on to actually versus getting so paralyzed i think that's what yeah i'm, I'm a verbal processor as you might be learning but i <laughs> i yeah i think perfection paralyzes yeah. Yeah. And that is, I feel like a lot of my life's mission is to like, be like, stop being paralyzed, move, go, do, yeah. act, right. you know, um, right. because you being paralyzed isn't freeing anyone. You're not free and no one else is free when you do that. So, right. yeah. So tell us a little bit about your work on the next question. Um, it's this well, you tell us. It's a TV series. Yeah. You have co-hosts. Um, Y'all interviewed folks. And, and are you coming back? Um, so yeah, just kind of tell us the evolution of that, what, how it was, how it evolved, yeah. emerged, all of that. So. Oh my gosh, this is my favorite thing to talk about other than my children, if they're listening. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they're listening. Um, no. So this, uh, so back up, like, the beginning of my racial justice kind of like awakening um, happened in college where I met another student um, on this like, it was called Sankofa, which is a, like, I think it's a Swahili word. Yeah. I think I know it is because I've looked this up. Um, and it means looking back in order to move forward. So it was this like very kind of like intense three day racial justice trip that I went on with my college um, like university ministries team. And along the way, I met this woman um, who was a woman at 18. She's just like, has that much of like a presence. But I met um, Austin Channing Brown and we became like instantly connected through this experience. And then I just, I don't over-spiritualize things, but I just see the hand of God on our partnership in just like all these like amazing, beautiful ways. So over the years, we've gotten to work together producing different um, like anti-racism workshops and videos. And she's now an author and she was just um, picked by Reese Witherspoon for Reese's book club um, for both June and July, which was super cool. And so like a year ago, a little over a year ago, so January of 2019, she comes to me and she just says, I have this, like, I have, like, I have this thing that I'm dreaming about. And I was like, it's a podcast, right? <laughs> She's like, no. She's like, I, no. She said, no. And I said, well, what, what else are people dreaming about these days besides podcasts? And she said, I want a space where I can um, engage with the activists, academics, scholars of our times about the actual issues that maintain racism and the people that are doing something to imagine a way to disrupt those things. Mm. And so she's like, I want to interview, you know, just all like she, I mean, our dream, well, yeah, we wanted to interview like ta Coates and Michelle Alexander and which like maybe will happen someday. Um, but so we, as we started dreaming about this, not only the concept of wanting the conversation to feel like it was moving beyond a racism 101 kind of, is blackface okay? What do we think about affirmative action? Can white people say the N word or not? You know, um, which it feels like anytime there was a like, we're going to have a race conversation as a, you know, as a country, 
those are the questions that would kick up in 2019. Obviously, 2020, it's kind of looking different. Um, but but way back then, <laughs> those right. were the types of things right. making the headlines. And so um, we knew we wanted that to be the content. And then we really, um, a lot of what Austin's book, um, her audience in mind was other Black women. And so we really wanted this to be a space where Black women were celebrated, were centered, and were visible. We really wanted the visibility of a, like, you know, video web series where you see these, like, brilliant people, not just hear them talking about these issues that affect their bodies, but actually see their bodies as we're laughing and talking and thinking and poking and, you know, questioning and imagining and dreaming. And um, so I just, I mean, I fell in love with the concept. My background is in video production. So we started working on, um, I mean, I started working on boring thing or less exciting things like, you know, schedule and budget. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we got to have these like incredible conversations with, um, with different guests. So we had, I mean, yeah, I feel like, you know, cer certain sentences you say and you're like, am I actually saying this and not just like making up a, a dream, you know, like projecting something to the yeah. future, but these actually happened. So we got to sit down and talk with Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is a New York Times journalist, MacArthur Genius Award recipient. She just won, she just won, she just won something else that I'm like, I don't know. And she's the architect of the 1619 Project, for those that are familiar, that came out um, last August um, in the New York Times. And then they have this like incredible podcast. So we sat down with her and talked about uh, racism in schools and um, how she was a product of busing in Iowa and um, self-care as a Black woman. What, you know, what, what, how is she taking care of herself so that she can stay in this work for the long haul? Um, we got to sit down with Brene Brown and poke kind of at, hey, like when you talk about um, laying down your protective armor, that's actually for a lot of people of color, that's actually protective of their paycheck, of their bodies of their livelihood of their dignity so it's actually a privilege to be like here I am you know being vulnerable and letting you all in yeah. and and had just like a really I, I mean yeah just a really really lovely profound conversation with her we talked to prison abolitionists to organizers who were in Ferguson um Rachel Cargill, uh, right? Rachel Cargill yeah. was one of our guests um, talking about, um, it's so funny the things that stick out to you. Cause like what I really remember about that conversation was about embracing nakedness, which I don't know if other people, that probably wasn't their takeaway. Um, but yeah, online activism, yeah. how do you do this? And, you know, in like more modern times and um so yeah, we got to just speak to an incredible, incredible array of people. And we were set to film this summer. And then obviously people don't wear masks and we're, <laughs> yeah. so we're hoping, ha ha ha, pandemic, not funny. But we are really hoping that by spring, we can be in production again for season two. So we're working on cool. fundraising for that. Um what that model will look like and but yeah we've we just it felt like when we were having these conversations it felt so relevant at the time and then you know with the murder of George Floyd and the, uh, kind of the uprising that we've seen in 2020 it became like critical it, it became like this like critical content that was just obviously I'm very biased, but it felt so like, oh, you want to think beyond, you want to think beyond policing? Okay, well, we actually talk about that. We talk about how yeah. this isn't a sustainable model, and we need to imagine a different way, and um, so I love, I'm, 
I love that we, I, I mean, it does, it feels like it was a lot of hard work, but then there was a little bit of magic of the get the, the, the quality of guests we got, the timing of it. And then the content that we really dug into was really about imagining um, one of our guests is this like brilliant, brilliant man um, named Andre Henry, who's a musician and activist, and he's working on a book that I can't wait to read. Um, and his kind of tagline is, it doesn't have to be this way. And I think that's a lot of what the show is really anchored in, is that kind of mindset of, we don't have to just like swallow this and say like, well, what are you going to do? Not only can we resist it, but we can imagine a new way of being. And really, um, and I think that's what a lot of people are being forced to do this year. Um, and I think a lot of people are saying that's not all inherently bad. You know, it's, right. it's not like we were sitting on a model in every aspect of society that we just want to like, well, let's just, you know, copy paste that right over, you know, unedited into the next COVID realm. Um, so yeah, I'm really, yeah. I'm really proud of it. Yeah. And it was really intimidating. <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, people can't see your face like I can right now because they'll just be listening to this. But of course, you lit up um, when I even asked that question. And so that, of course, says to me that there's just deep joy and gratitude there. Mm. And that emanates from you. And I want people to know um, who are listening that it will link to the next question. So in our show notes, so folks can, can access that and engage with it because uh, I know that it's been a really helpful thing in my own life and mm-hmm. in process. So thank you for that. And and then of course Austin Channing Brown, who you mentioned, um, her book that Reese uh, highlighted or chose to her her mm-hmm. her book club. I say Reese like we're friends. Reese Witherspoon. No, we are. You're in Nashville. <laughs> You're like that's true. I, <laughs> yeah, like a stone's throw, right? <laughs> Just over the river. Um, but that's um, Austin Channing Brown's book, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness, um, which admittedly I have not read. It is on, I know, I know, Jenny's not happy. I'm just being really honest here. I've, there have been, I know. Okay. Oh, that's um, great. I mean, it's I, not great. It will take It's an you- opportunity. It is an invite. I will invite you into reading it. It will. It's now available at Target. Yeah, I mean it's everywhere. Yeah, now, it is, which is yeah. so great, and it's making so many. The comment section of Reese's Book Club were so fun to read. <laughs> so many people were like, "What do you mean a world made for whiteness? Well, that's mm. racist and all you know." And mm, I'm sure it was. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, but it it's, is available a lot of places. Yeah, so it's on the list. Um, as you know, I have, I mean, an almost one-year-old and I, for me, reading has been a challenge as a parent. <laughs> so, yep. um, just my attention span and my, my energy, but yeah. Um, you but own I do it thought, yet? Um, no. Okay. I'm I mean, I'm going to, well, no, I just, I really, it is honestly, people in the last like six months have been like, what should I be reading? Where should I start? What should I, you know, for people that are like, very, very fresh to this conversation. And I don't say this to you because I think you're fresh to it, but I always recommend it first because I'm like, you will, you will not put it down and you will finish it within 48 hours. Like, I think when she sent it to me and it was like nearly final, I think. Yeah, I was, I, I didn't, I just stayed up. I just finished it in like three hours. So it's a very, it's potent. She's such a brilliant writer. And so every word counts, but she doesn't just throw in bonus words for no reason, you know? So it, it moves really quickly. So I highly recommend it because I don't want people to be like, well, I started this book. And then it was like, no, I want you to finish one and then be like, what's next and not get stuck because you're like, oh my gosh, what are these terms? What, you know, what are, what are all these things? So I, um, and it's really about being a black woman in predominantly white spaces of faith, um, mm-hmm. is a lot of what she's, that's been a lot of her experience. So mm-hmm. yes. 
so okay. clear when I, okay. I cannot wait to talk to you again after you've read it is all I'm going to say. Okay, good. Okay. I'm on it. Uh, and I'm actually in between, I just finished, um, uh, Celeste Ng book, not the little, I've, I read little fires everywhere a while back, but, um, I had never read her everything. I never told you. I read that this year too. Yeah. Um, and so, and sometimes when I read something like that, I kind of like to let it like marinate for a little bit. Um, I have a tendency to sort of go from really quickly from one thing to the next. And so I've been kind of sitting with that and then listened to um, Brene Brown's podcast with, uh, the, with Celeste Ng, particularly around Little Fires Everywhere. But then yeah. she also talks with Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington, who star in the uh, series on Hulu adaptation of Little Fires Everywhere. But, um, but yeah, so it's all been just kind of hanging out with me. But, um, but yes. Um, I was fantasizing. Um, so I'm working on a book, which you can ask me about later. <laughs> but I am. Yeah, about I'm going there. Like all the time. But I learned this morning. I need to write this down, but now it'll be recorded. So that's good. But I literally was having this fantasy about having a footnote just like directed to Carrie Washington. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, um, yeah, I won't get, I won't go all the way back, but I was introduced to Carrie Washington in the, the beautiful, incredible performance in Save the Last Dance, which was yes. like, do you remember that movie? Okay. Oh but, yeah. Um, that was, yes. Oh yeah. That was like, we watched it like the day after prom. Anyway. Loved that movie, thought it was so cool. And there's a scene, so for those of you that don't know this movie, I won't go into the whole backstory, but it's like a white girl whose mom dies and she moves in with her dad on the south side of Chicago and her school is like all black. And she's getting in a fight with Carrie Washington's character and Carrie Washington says like something like there's two worlds and you know you don't you don't know but like there's two worlds or whatever and then later in the movie like a black world and a white world and then later in the movie she's like I don't know what I was saying I was just tripping like there's only one world or kind of resolves it and and at the time I mean I don't I'm not going to comment on what like 18 year old Jenny thought but I have come back to that so many times where I'm like that was like a white director who got in there and made her say that so I want her I want her to know that we know she didn't want to say that and then I want to thank her for the line in Little Fires Everywhere, which is, you didn't make good choices, you had good choices. Because mm. I feel like if there is one line that, uh, yeah, that it just like summarizes so much of the injustice that we're talking about, it's that. I'm like, that is mm -hmm. just, that moment on the show yeah. and was, I'm like, Carrie Washington, we just, hats yeah. off, mazel tov, you're yeah. Amazing. She's so good on that show. I loved, I like loved that show anyway. So there's well, my yeah. And, and Celeste Ng, uh, the writer of these two novels, everything I never told you and little fires everywhere for me is so brilliant at writing fiction about intersectionality, right? That you can't have race without gender and you can't have that without geography. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> where, where do we live? How does the land, how does the makeup of, of, you know, our neighborhoods, all of these things influence then how we're hanging out and talking with each other. And um, it, she's just brilliant at that. And, yep. yeah. and then they were brilliant in portraying it in this TV show. So, yeah. Um, so you mentioned that you're working on a book. And I would love for you to talk to us about that. Um, yeah. What's the book going to be about? What are your hopes for it? What are your, what are your fears? Uh, what are your hangups? Yeah. <laughs> what are you Got working all those through? Things. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and yeah, who's the, who's the book for? Like, what's the target audience? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So talk to us about that. A lot of this is about my own racial justice journey and awakening and, um, I use kind of the language, like my relationship to racial justice, that kind of when was I introduced to racial justice and then how has that relationship transformed and evolved over the years? How has it transformed me um, and the way that I see the world and the way that I interact, like kind of how any relationship would. Um, 
the commitment that I think is required. So the title now, after all of that, after I've said Wimpy White Boys about a hundred times and not the actual title of the book, the title of the book now is Doing Nothing is No Longer an Option, which um, I got to get better at this, Claire. I have not talked about it that much yet publicly. Um, but I mentioned that trip that I took in college. I had kind of this like, I had this moment. So we, they take you on all these like civil rights, um, civil rights sites, museums, plantations. We went to like a lynching museum, just like horrific, horrific parts of American history. And we had just finished up at a lynching museum and there was a black girl on our trip on our bus who recognized a name like like her family like last name was one of the like victims of a lynching and she's trying to connect like is this my you know like but she's it's not i mean it's just like this visceral response of recognition and she i mean it it was like instantaneous um just like grief and shock. And it was like, we're all kind of witnessing this as she's like processing. And um, part of the trip is you are supposed to like kind of process in front of each other at this microphone at the front of the bus. So we get back on the bus. And once you read Austin's book, you'll recognize this scene, but we get back on the bus and white person after white person is like, I'm so sorry, but I wasn't there and I didn't do anything. And those weren't my, that wasn't my family that did that to maybe your family. And, um, and you know, the Holocaust was really bad. And so maybe we should talk about the Holocaust because that was some really, that was evil that happened there too. Like this isn't, this isn't just like a black and white thing there, you know, there've been so many things throughout his just like Mm. deflection and, um, avoidance and not wanting to be associated with any of the pain that we were witnessing and experiencing um, through the eyes of this one girl. And there was a black girl that got to the front of the bus and she's like, I just think white people are evil and I don't know what else to do with that. I just think they're evil. It's just like, okay. So like we have like white people that don't want to touch this. And then like a black girl who's like, I just think you all are evil. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I don't like, what else do you call this? This is, this is evil. Um, but my partner, so you're, you're like paired up with like a a partner to kind of process everything. And she's just looking at me and through clenched teeth, she just goes, Jenny, go say something. And I was like, okay. So I go to the front of the bus. Claire, I say, like, I honestly don't even remember what the first thing I said was, but whatever I said, a bunch of black students on the bus, like applauded. And I, just lost it. Mm. I have growing up in the church, I've always heard about like radical conversion moments and like, you know, the rush of like experiencing grace. And I had that and I never had that in my faith tradition as I, you know, so I thought, and in that moment I was like, I do not deserve this. Mm. I do not deserve this response from these students. Like I have literally said like, you know, like what, but, um, but it wasn't about that. It was about their response. And that, that, that changed me more than seeing a lynching museum, seeing where MLK was shot, seeing all like their response in real time saying, we're not, our goal isn't to like ostracize you and to shame you into oblivion. It's to say, let's do the work together. What? Um, and so in that moment, I said, you know, I can't, I can, I can, I cannot do anything to fix the pain that I'm seeing, but I can see it and I can commit to doing something about it. And then I said, doing nothing is no longer an option for me. And that's where that is my, that has been my vow. Like lately I've almost, um, I'm working on this chapter right now. And I almost recently, as I've just like been in my memory about it, I honestly almost feel like I was walking down like a wedding aisle. Mm. And 
like, cause I was walking down this bus and you know, there's two sides and I stood at, in front of witnesses and, and vowed to them that doing nothing is no longer an option. And just like when you get married, I think it's, we, in our wedding, um, you know, we had a moment where we got to look at all the people that were gathered to witness these, this commitment, these vows that were said, not just to each other, not just in front of God, but to, to this community of people. And that's, um, I want, that's what's kept me was I had like inherent accountability from people on that bus. Um, I recognized that I needed them to just like in merit, you need that community to like keep you accountable and check in. And um, it's not just like all up to you. And that, so that's really who I want. I want my book is for Jenny when she was 19, knowing that something was like not quite right, but like, what do you even, you know, what do you do? And my invitation to predominantly white people is you just got to do something because doing nothing isn't an option. Doing nothing is why we're stuck here and, and doing nothing, um, doing nothing you don't need to come up with all the answers. Like you can follow, like that is doing something. This isn't about white people to the rescue. This is, oh, I'm going to join what's already been ongoing and in the works. And that is still doing something. I want white people to know, like, you're missing out. This work is like deeply beautiful and redemptive and transformative. And you are literally missing out when you're not part of it. And I have experienced more nearness to Jesus through some of this work um, than I have through anything that the church has offered me or that, you know, more things that I think are more spiritual have offered me. Um, And, and so I just, yeah, I just want to be like, white people, you are literally missing out you're missing out and I don't want you to miss out. And this isn't about your personal transformation, but that will come as you're pursuing justice yeah. and trying, you will also get free as you are pursuing the free others. Like it just, it, it that's just how it yeah. works. Yeah. So, I mean, right. Limiting. And this is what I heard in your story too, the story of the bus. And you're talking about the imagery of a wedding and walking down the aisle or right. We could think about ordination mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and that happens differently, of course, in, in different traditions, but there mm-hmm. is an element of community in ordination. And I think about, right, how mm-hmm. in my experience, we don't heal without community. Like that just doesn't happen. Like I am not on my own in this. I can't be. Um, yep. And if I am like, that's not the real work of healing. And so just mm-hmm. right. The ways that we, can Mm -hmm. have that language that invites us to do it together and yeah and that's what I heard in all in all that you were saying about kind Mm -hmm. of how the book has has really been being born for years yeah um what 20 years I mean yeah um and and so I'm excited to see it be born continue to be born um, in the ways that it, it it finds itself on the page and um you know we of course are wow, looking at our time, um, there's so much here. But I, I, I think I'd be remiss to not bring up sort of the specific ways um, for you that anti-racism work is spiritual work. And, sp- and, th- and that's what we say in the academy, like um, contemplation, like going deep into mm-hmm. our inner lives is what allows us to do the outer work of love and justice in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, this is, this is Merton, this is Jesus, this is, you know, beyond um, and, and deep in, in our culture, in our, uh, in our culture, in history of our faith. And so talk with us a little bit as, as we kind of uh, close here about what that looks like for you. Um, Mm -hmm. Why, why and how? 
um, mm-hmm. is the work of anti-racism deeply spiritual? It's been interesting because even in the last couple of months before we connected, I've been thinking about um, what does actually transform me. Like, because I, mm. I think being connected to Jesus is transforming. And so I'm like, what in my life, um, like I mentioned, you know, I grew up, went to like a wanna, like memorized verses, like read the whole Bible, like from cover to cover and like junior high and high school. And I don't know if any of that transformed me, you know, looking back. And I know for some people, it absolutely does. Like, Jesus in the pages of scripture comes alive and they, you know, um, that was just never. So I, I, I think for a long time, I thought that there were like four things on the spiritual, like discipline practice kind of menu and none of them really did anything for me. And it's really been in the last few months that I've been thinking about, okay, what, what actually is refining me? What actually um, or, or just through the lens of like spirituality, like what is bringing me closer to the, you know, um, the Beatitudes and what is bringing me closer to like who Jesus said would actually inherit the kingdom of heaven. And it's, it's all the work of pursuing anti-racism. And, um, and I think it's, um, it was like for me, and I think this is why, like, maybe I've had a hard time articulating it. And even now, because for me, it was like, I, I'm reflecting back and seeing it. It wasn't, I followed Jesus. So now I am pursuing the work of anti-racism. It's almost like, as I look back in my pursuit of anti-racism, I see Jesus and I like together doing that work. And I see the growth and the change and the dependence and the humility and the, all these, like all this fruit that I'm like, oh, that, that wasn't just like me becoming a better person. That's what happens when you're doing the work of justice and, and sourced by Jesus, if that makes sense. So like, um, so I, you know, as I, I've been listening. I've actually been like helping produce a podcast about spiritual practices. And they had someone on who said, you need to look at what in your life is transforming you and pay attention because that's where God is doing. That's where God is creating something new in you. And it was really in that conversation that I kind of heard this shift of like, well, that's where I'm being the most transformed. And so even though I'm not hearing about it, in in the realms of spirituality that doesn't mean that this work isn't spiritual it just means that other people are slow to recognizing how much is actually happening in this work because it's about um yeah it's about so many of the things i just talked about and it's about human connection human to human which is like so how i'm hardwired so of course god isn't gonna I'm not saying God couldn't meet me in the solitude because I need to try that. And I was supposed to go on a solitude retreat and then COVID hit. So I can't, because I was like, I'm willing to give this a try, people. Everyone loves this. I'm willing to, you know, shut it, shut it down for eight hours and not talk to another person. But like, I'm such a deeply, I love humans. And so of course that is where God is going to meet me in having deep, deep connection as we dream and imagine kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Like that is what I am. um, That's what I'm in the pursuit of, you know? And, and it feels this lovely, like organic unprescribed way, but then of course it fits like with the way that Jesus works in the world, which is human and, um, the margins and, you know, all the things that, um, that whiteness kind of keeps us from. And so, um, yeah, thanks for letting me, like, I kind of (laughs) got. No, I, the other phrase uh, that I was thinking of earlier, um, as you were talking and exploring and all of that was one of my friends, dear friends, 
who's actually an academy person, um, Helen Ride, always reminds me when I'm kind of spinning and, and doing stuff, she says, stay in the river. Hmm. Um, they, I, I use the incorrect pronoun for mm-hmm. Helen, so mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to correct that. But Great. they say, stay in the river. And that is such a powerful place for me um, mm. because I can see myself really wanting to get out of that flow a lot and mm. like hang out on the side. Um, and, and so I just remember that and, and I have this vision of kind of my feet just being in, you know, a pretty shallow river, but the flow of it. Right. And just kind mm. of feeling that. Um, and then the other kind of, yeah, thing is, um, that kind of comes from a Buddhist teaching, but it's, we need not sink, we need not swim, we can float. Mm. Um, And particularly in this time of global pandemic and uh, Mm. of reawakening, maybe some of us awakening for the first time to racism, but also of COVID, um, it's like, okay, I can, I can take a deep breath here and lay back and float for a minute and Mm. trust that I'm held. Um, Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, uh, those are just some of the things that, that came to me as, as you were talking. Mm. And um, of course, I'm just grateful for your time today. And Mm. I always like to ask our guests if they have a blessing or a poem or uh, something that they want to mm-hmm. offer for us uh, as we close. So I wonder what that might be from you. Yeah. Um, I love that. That's how you close. I think that's so beautiful. And I am such a, um, yeah, when you, when I read that question, I instantly had an answer. So I'll share mm-hmm. that now, but um, you know, I think a lot of us right now are asking like, yeah, just lots of like, is what I'm doing, does it matter? Like it does this, who is this for? Does it matter? Is it making a difference? And one thing that I've really held on to as soon as I heard the story um, has helped me with that kind of contemplation. And I heard this story a couple of years ago of, um, I think it was during the Vietnam War of, uh, of a man who every day, do you know the story? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Um, of a man who every day went in front of the White House and I think like lit a candle or said a prayer or I don't know what, he did some sort of demonstration every single day. And I wanna say, legend has it, it was for a long period of time, like months into maybe even years. And um, at one point, someone, maybe who worked there, someone kind of came up to him and said like, why do you do this every day? Like do you think that anyone inside there even sees what you're doing or like cares? Like, like, do you actually think like this is going to change them? And he said, Oh no, I don't do this to change them. I do this so that this doesn't change me so that I stay rooted to this work because I don't have control over what they're doing. And I don't have control over how they interpret my gesture, my, act of protest, my act of resistance, but this grounds me to who I know and what I know to be true. And with so much flurry going on, that's really, that's really helped anchor me of, I can't control the outcomes of calls that I make, emails that I send, petitions I sign, um, times I raise my hand, who I give money to, you know, all these, I can't control the outcomes of them, but if I stop, then who am I, you know? And that's really kind of what I'm, um, yeah, what that story does for me. So do it for you because you're the only thing that you can kind of control, you know, and there is great power in that. So and that, right, those practices uh, mm-hmm. are what keep us human. And yeah. we need really deeply human people. Um, and by that, mm-hmm. I mean deeply compassionate, loving, justice-seeking people. 
mm-hmm. uh, in the world and mm-hmm. and we hope to be uh, one of those places uh, <laughs> where yeah. where folks can can thrive so mm-hmm. um, again, thank you so much for being with us and for sharing your heart and your vulnerability, your truth, mm-hmm. your questions. Yeah, it means a lot. Thanks, Claire. Yeah. I'm so honored to be, I mean, it was just fun. Thanks for listening along with us today. For more information on how you can begin and continue the work of anti-racism, visit the Academy Resources page at academy.upperroom.org backslash resources. And if you have questions about the work of anti-racism or about this particular podcast episode, please email us at academy at upperroom.org. You can also find the links you need and that we talk about uh, in this episode in the show notes. So please take a look at that. It's on our website uh, under podcast and this particular episode with Jenny. The work of love and justice begs of us to stand our sacred ground, to open ourselves to change, and to deeply trust in the God who marches, dances, listens, learns, and sings along with us. Thanks for being a part of this life-changing work. We're grateful you're here, and we hope you'll stay with us for the long haul. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides in the area of spiritual formation, and to learn more about Academy offerings, visit us online at academy.upperroom.org.